Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. BetOnline is back and better than ever with a new web interface for the start of basketball season. BetOnline has more props, odds, and lines than ever before. Head to the new updated desktop or mobile website to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Use the promo code BLEAVE50, B-L-E-A-V-50, to receive your bonus. From basketball, football, baseball, postseason, NHL, boxing, BetOnline is the fastest and easiest way to bet all your favorite sports. BetOnline, where the game starts. All right, everybody, however and whenever it is you may be listening, thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of Wired Up This is Wired Up episode 92. That is almost a year and a half. No, it's over a year and a half worth of Wired Ups. We're approaching two full years of Wired Ups. That is kind of hard to believe. Wired Up is, of course, our Sunday podcast where we talk about things that usually happen in the two days interim, but then football kind of dominates on Monday, but this time football might not entirely dominate on Monday because the World Series is going to end And we should probably talk about that if the World Series does end on Sunday. But this is what the podcast is for, is so that when NFL dominates our Sunday and gives us two podcasts to talk about on Monday, we can talk about college football and we can talk about, in this case, playoff baseball and all kinds of interesting stories that may or may not drop like a Friday night news dump, which is a thing that, if you're not familiar with, we've talked about before. The Friday night news dump is when... Usually a team from Boston, but anyone just tries to dump a major news story in the middle of the night on Friday, usually around like 7 o'clock East Coast time. Most people have just gotten off work. It's the weekend, and they'll kind of just dump a news story in there that won't get talked about over the weekend, but it can't be a big story because if it's a big story, people will still know about it, and that'll be a talking point even still, but it just won't be on cable television or like your Monday through Friday podcasts. So, yeah, usually a Patriots will do it. Usually, I think the Boston Bruins did it one time that was like a big deal with Tuka Rask or something, but yeah, strategic late Friday news dump so that people won't talk about it for and then hopefully forget about it because of NFL and college football. All right, that's the concept there. That's why we have Wired Up. Let's get to it here today and start off with our wonderful theme music whenever we got baseball coverage on the pod. So let's roll along with Rob Stone, all nine innings, Padres rap anthem for 2021, except the Padres are now eliminated. By the way, cool, they hired Bob Melvin. You can see my reaction to that on the Slump Buster YouTube. Link in the description to today's episode. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
So that was an interesting two days of baseball, wasn't it? We talked about games one and two a few days ago, but just to revisit that, it felt like games one and two of the World Series were kind of flip-flops of each other, where game one, the Atlanta Braves hit a leadoff homer, first time there's been a leadoff homer in the World Series, and they won six to two, and they pretty much dominated game one, and it wasn't really interesting. And then in game two, the Astros scored in the first inning, never let up, and then they ended up winning by... I think it was 6-2 as well. <laughs> Don't quote me on it, but I think it was 6-2 also in that one, which is kind of funny. So it felt like the first two games were like flip-flops of each other, where like both, oh, it was 7-2 in the game two, but still, same point. Felt like it was a flip-flop of the two games in game one and two. Then we go to Atlanta, and Ian Anderson, hats off to you, because the thing that I said is like the Braves are built on three pitchers. They got three pitchers they can count on. Outside of that, they got nothing left. And now Charlie Morton broke his leg in game one, still pitched a full inning on a broken leg, but then was immediately ruled out for the playoffs. We laughed at that back on Wednesday. Not the idea that he broke his leg, but we laughed that he pitched through the whole thing and before the game was even over, they just immediately ruled him out for the rest of the playoffs. So anyways, flash forward to game three. They get that pitching start that... Everyone, no matter who you are, can win a World Series when you have a pitching staff that can give you five no-hit innings and relievers that allow no runs, and it's a two-hitter, and the Braves win with only two runs that really felt like one run because the second run came in garbage time. Atlanta can have bad games in a game that maybe they lose if the Astros don't have an all-time bad hitting day. Uh, We'll get to Bregman and Correa at some point. But then we get to game four, and it feels like everything flip-flopped again. Atlanta Braves can't get a hit to save their lives. And Zach Granke throws five innings of shutout ball, even though Zach Granke can't throw the ball faster than 90 miles an hour anymore. It was weird. It was fascinating. And anyways, so it felt like the exact same thing again, where game three and game four were like flip-flops of each other. The Astros had seven runners in scoring position, couldn't bring one of them in. It was one nothing. It was 2 nothing. They just kept letting the Braves hang around the whole way through. Altuve hit that tank of a homer. They just kept letting him hang around, hang around. Austin Riley gets an RBI single because Jordan Alvarez doesn't play left field and he was playing too far back, and so the ball drops in front of him. Keep letting him hang around, let him hang around, and the Astros finally ran out of gas on offense because then the Braves went to the bullpen. The Braves bullpen that for three years we've been joking has been terrible. Every year they try and trade for two or three relievers at the deadline and it never helps at all. Whether it's Shane Green or Sam Dyson, whoever they trade for never matters. Braves always have a terrible bullpen when it comes playoff time. And now that bullpen with Matt Mazdek hope I said that right, Mazdek and Will Smith as the closer. It's been ridiculous how good the Braves bullpen has been. Tonight, Kyle Wright ends up being the unofficial starter, and he was always one of those like top prospects that it felt like never really panned out for Atlanta. Like He was always a top 20 prospect, but just could never crack the major league lineup, which happens with the Dodgers a lot where they have so many players at the major league level that the top prospects can't really get through. Happened to Arias, Verdugo, before he got traded to the Red Sox. Gavin Lux was the classic example recently. Like, you just can't find a spot for them because the team just has so many good players. 
And in the case of Atlanta, they traded for a bunch of pretty good players like Duvall and Jorge Soler and Eddie Rosario, who's somehow hitting over 400 in the playoffs. But anyways, so Atlanta ends up having that guy and they just hung around long enough for the Houston Astros to finally self-implode when they go to the bullpen. Dansby Swanson rips a home run to make it 2-2. Two to two. I went downstairs to fill my water bottle. I came back and Jorge Soler had already hit the game, the go-ahead homer on back-to-back plays. Because when you have a series that literally in the last two games has had, prior to this point, five runs in 15 and a half innings, you don't expect... All the runs are going to come on back-to-back homers, on back-to-back at-bats. So I walked away from the go-ahead homer, and it pained me that it happened because I only missed three pitches, and one of them happened to be the Jorge Soler go-ahead home run. Love the obscure stats that Fox is adopting from ESPN, where now Jorge Soler is the first player in World Series history to have a leadoff home run and a pinch-hit home run because, of course, he is. That is such a ridiculously obscure thing. There's only been like a few like a few dozen combined of both of those. What are the odds that the same player is going to have a leadoff homer and then not start another game? Like that just doesn't happen and I know baseball's been around for like 118 years, but of course that's just a ridiculously obscure stat. But anyways, ridiculously obscure stats are our bread and butter here. So, the Houston Astros Nine times out of ten, win that game four. The Houston Astros win that game nine times out of ten. They just let the Braves keep hanging around, keep hanging around. Braves tried this weird option of having a reliever start and then going to Kyle Wright so you could do the lefty matchup, except this was his first ever start in a baseball game in the game four of the World Series. He was a rookie. I forgot his name now, but he was a lefty, and they wanted to do the lefty matchup, and he walked three people, so it didn't matter, but the Astros, with the bases loaded and one out, only got one run on like a nubber ground ball by Carlos Correa. But here's the perfect reason why the Houston Astros lose game four, even though they should have won nine times out of ten. The Houston Astros left ten runners on base against the Atlanta Braves, All 10 came in the first five innings. That's two runners left on base, an inning to start the game. And then the Houston Astros just couldn't buy a hit the rest of the way, the same way they couldn't buy a hit against Ian Anderson yesterday. Literally, Ian Anderson got no hits allowed, two out of the bullpen. But the Houston Astros offense is self-imploding down the stretch, which is kind of unbelievable, right? Like this was... Not quite the murderer's mile that they had in 2019 where they had just ridiculous dudes up and down the order. This is a team that's built on six or seven guys who are all really good. And I don't remember if Michael Brantley was an all-star this year, but Michael Brantley was another one of these people who we kind of forget about when we list the seven great hitters on the Astros. When we talk about the former core or the the three-fourths of the core four, uh, Altuve, Correa, and Alex Bregman, Jordan Alvarez, who's an absolute stud, uh, Yuli Gurriel, absolute stud, Kyle Tucker, and of course the aforementioned Michael Brantley. And those seven guys are one through seven in the order, 
And then after that, it's not a whole lot else. It's a Chaz McCormick here. It's a, it's a Stassi somewhere on that team. There's a, an Aledmus Diaz. Like, there's just not a lot. It's not the murderer's mile like it was before, where the Astros just kept hitting you over the head again and again and again. Like, there, there are two spots in the order, regardless of whether the pitcher's playing or not. Which, by the way, Zach Granke had that one hit that at the time... Actually, no, it still exists. Zach Granke has one hit in the World Series, which is the equivalent of the number of hits that Alex Bregman also has in the World Series. It was also the number of hits Carlos Correa had in the World Series until he got his second hit of the World Series in this game. And so the Houston Astros found themselves with... Two guys, really three if you think about it, because they've been struggling um, with Yuli Gurriel in the series, but three or four of the guys, but more specifically the two of the the core four that's no longer core four because George Springer is gone, being Carlos Correa and Alex Bregman just disappearing. And this is like the anti-Astros, right? Like this is a team that's built this year almost entirely on offense. The pitching staff is good enough to get by, as we saw today, like Zach Granke had like a 4-4 ERA this year. The last time he pitched, the Red Sox scored like six runs in four outs. So Zach Granke's like holding on to the very ends of his career and giving you five shutout innings. And Urikidi is going to have a terrible start, but the next night he's going to give you five shutout innings. And Garcia is going to give you five shutout innings. And he's going to give you one run allowed, but then they're going to give up all these runs after that. And Framber Valdez is going to throw five no-hit innings and then he's going to come back in game one and have the worst game one start of any starting pitcher since Roger Clemens. Like, it's just weird how the Astros pitching staff works. It's hard to rely on them because they're not names that are consistently great, except Lance McCullers, who's not there anymore. Bullpen does enough. What we saw tonight, bullpen fell apart. It's going to happen. Team is built on its offense. And it's the reason I said Houston was going to make the World Series going back to the very start of the playoffs. Like Houston was the best team in the National League. Not trying to like take tons of credit on it because I always say like neuter the opinions of playoff baseball because it's a crapshoot at times. But the Astros are built on best offense in baseball. Top to bottom. I mean, not top to bottom. Top heavy best offense in baseball. And those guys come one after the other one through seven. You can get through it with eight and nine, but even Martin Maldonado is good for like an RBI double every now and then. Like Martin Maldonado is not bad by catcher standards. So like if you put it up against any other offense the NF- in the MLB, it's not that bad. What's super fascinating is the offense disappearing in a way we're not used to the Astros having that happen. If you remember back to last year in the playoffs, the Houston Astros were like 29 and 31, but they only made the playoffs because two teams had to make it from their division. And so they were the sixth seed out of eight because it was the, the pandemic season and they changed the playoff format. And the Astros got to the playoffs and they played Oakland, I believe, in the DS. And it was just a no contest. Like the Astros were just so much better than Oakland because they got healthy and these guys that we're used to seeing do awesome in the playoffs. Bregman's the guy who four years ago had the, the winning run in the 12 to 11 shootout that people now point to as like the moment of the sign stealing scandal because Kershaw got rocked in a way Kershaw had never been rocked before. And the Astros took all of his curveballs, all 54 curveballs, when he has like a swing and miss rate of like 25%. And that's the one people point to with the trash cans. And so. 
that game, Bregman's the hero. Bregman's the all-star. Bregman's one of the best dudes. And now in the World Series, one for 19, just vanishing out of thin air for the Houston Astros at this point. Carlos Correa, uh, going back to the very end of the Red Sox series in the first four games here, is now two for 22 for the Houston Astros. It's a combined between the two of them who are the five and three hitters for the Houston Astros. So Jordan Alvarez is now getting swallowed up there too because no matter how good Jordan Alvarez is, if you have guys in front of him who can't, who never get on base and behind him who never get on base, that swallows up Jordan's production unless he's hitting solo homers, which I guess in a low-scoring series matters, but a solo homer is only going to get you so far as the Yankees saw at the end of the season. So Jordan Alvarez gets swallowed up by those two guys being right around him who, if you add the numbers together, combined three for 40 in the play in the World Series and for Correa the last two games of the CS. Three for 40, that's an 075 batting average around Jordan Alvarez. And surprisingly, the person who stepped up on the other end of that is Jose Altuve. And then down lower in the order, you have Kyle Tucker, who has kind of bailed them out a little bit. But it's not like it's bailing them out in terms of, oh, we're now still stable. It's like bailing us out so we're not a historically bad team that gets no hit in the World Series. Like, the Astros have two runs, the one game with seven runs, no runs, and two runs, and the two in the last game today came on Altuve's solo homer and three walks. And then a Carlos Correa ground out. They got no hits in scoring one of those runs. And they got those Altuve home run. That's two runs on one total hit. They had two hits for no runs in the game before that. So if you just count offensive production and not runners left on base, that's three meaningful hits, two meaningful hits in the entire last two games in Atlanta. So of course you're going to lose the World Series if that's the case. Of course you're going to lose the World Series if you're getting one meaningful hit across two games and then you only get two runs and you get the doors blown off you because Valdez had a bad start in game one because your pitching staff is not always going to be super reliable. Sometimes it's going to be reliable. Urdikidi is going to have a good game. Garcia is going to have a great game six. Granke's going to give you five shutout innings. It's going to be good now and then. But what happens when it's bad? When the team is built on offense and the offense disappears, of course you're going to end up losing the World Series, which is crazy to think about because Atlanta has done not so great themselves. The se- By the way, this is crazy. The seventh inning of Game 4 was the first time there was a lead change in the entire World Series. They've been just wire-to-wire victories all the way through. And Game 3 was more of a pitcher's duel than anything else, but wire-to-wire victories for both teams and the Braves hung around just long enough to win so what is the nine times out of ten Houston Astros are going to win this it is the nine times out of ten throughout the season where the Houston Astros don't have a three and five hitter cannibalizing the four hitter and just creating a an I don't even know what you'd call it like a quicksand stopper for the offense every single time they get to that part of the order 
And that's how you, you lose a World Series. The Astros across a long season, those things are going to iron themselves out. Has Alex Bregman had a great season? No, he hasn't. He's like a 252 hitter. But Alex Bregman has been historically like a 300 hitter in the playoffs. And some of those things are going to iron themselves out or regress to the mean or whatever you want to call it over a larger five-year playoff sample size. Alex Bregman is going to go from being a 320 hitter in the playoffs to this year being 062. Why? Because that averages out to about 280, 290. And that's about where Alex Bregman hits normally. This year he hit like 252, but Alex Bregman for his career is probably like a 280 hitter. And so all of that's going to average out as Alex Bregman has a regular season's worth of playoff games. And Alex Bregman is now in his fifth season with the Astros, or sorry, sixth season, but fifth playoff run with the Astros. Uh, Carlos Correa is now in his seventh season and fifth playoff run with the Astros. Maybe he was on the 2015 team. That would be six playoff runs. But this is where it all starts to regress a bit, is when you've seen it over a long sample size, we've seen the Astros succeed in the playoffs for so long and now all of a sudden it falls apart. The easier way to talk about it is, well, those are the guys who were banging on the trash can. Altuve was never banging on the trash can. Of course, yeah, fun. Okay, let's. we can do that. We can be the anti-sign-stealing people, sure. We are, we are pro-Astros very much here on this podcast. But the part that's interesting is as you get a full career's worth of playoff at-bats, Jose, L, I mean, sorry, Carlos Cur- Try that again. Alex Bregman has played 71 playoff games now in his career. That is a half a season's worth of playoff games. And his career, he is a 228 playoff hitter. A lot of that's getting dragged down by recent stuff. It's a really interesting dichotomy. I did not realize that Alex Bregman was that poor of a playoff hitter. It's a weird coinkadink. Uh, also, weird stat about his splits. In the wild card, he's a 143 hitter. Now, it's only seven at-bats, but in the DS, the CS, and the World Series, roughly similar at-bats, a few more than the CS. He is 192 in the World Series, 167 in the CS, but 360 in the American League Division Series. This year, hit 375 in the DS, 400 in the DS last year, hit 353 in the DS against Tampa back in 2019, hit 556 in the DS against Cleveland, which is five for nine for people who are wondering. It's a weird situation with Bregman, and it's a weird situation with Correa where over a long sample size, they're probably going to even those things out. Now, it's it appears that Bregman is just abjectly worse in the playoffs. Um, he's now like a 252 hitter in general. So maybe that means he'll regress back up. There's obviously psychologies around it about, um, when you're, when you're stressed and when you're anxious, you can't execute at your best. And that's probably part of it for Alex Bregman. And probably not going to get much better at this point, given how, how on hard of times he's fallen. But Carlos Correa, on the other hand, is a 267 hitter in the playoffs with an OPS of 845. That's more normal and consistent with his entire career, which, by the way, he's played 77 playoff games, for those who are wondering, which is another, again, half a season. Um, For his career, he is an 837 hitter, and he's 842 in the playoffs. 
But before this series, he was 886 in the playoffs. And so this is regression to the mean for Carlos Correa. For Bregman, it looks to be a little different just because Bregman is abjectly worse in the playoffs. But career, let's see, career, he is an 884 OPS. And when he gets to the playoffs, Bregman is a 744 hitter. So Bregman gets abjectly worse in the playoffs, whether that's a psychology thing or we don't have a large enough sample size of Bregman in the playoffs, who knows. Um, But Bregman is a different case from Correa, both of them right now happen to be hitting slump stretches even by their own standards because, you know, when you combine hit hit 070 between the two, or 075, I think it was, 3 for 40, 075 between the two of you, uh, everything kind of just cannibalizes itself and it feels like the world is falling around you. So Correa and Altuve, who are, again, like I mentioned, are also cannibalizing Jordan Alvarez, are the reason why the Houston Astros will lose the World Series after the fact. Like, I'm not saying it's over because these things can change on a dime and baseball has random sample sizes, and I think the Astros will still be favored in Game 5, even on the road, even though they've had two hits in the last two games. Like, I assume they'll still be favored, and Jose Altuve and Michael Brantley and maybe Martin Maldonado and... Kyle Tucker might be able to pick up the slack and maybe they'll change the lineup up a bit. Who knows? Dusty Baker said he might consider moving Bregman down or moving Alvarez to the three or moving Tucker to the two and Brantley to the three or whatever they might end up doing to give themselves a better chance of generating runs. Because if you get hitters that are on a good streak back to back to back, those guys will generate more runs. And if you put the poor hitters back to back to back, it means that innings will end once you get to that stretch. But if you get back-to-back-to-back hits, that's a way to manufacture runs. What they have right now is like, okay, Brantley gets a hit, then Correa gets out, then Alvarez draws a walk, then uh, Bregman gets out, or sorry, Bregman would be three. So Bregman gets out, Alvarez draws a walk, Correa gets out, and then now you have uh, two on and two out instead of the other way where you maybe have... Uh, Tucker draw a walk, Brantley draw a walk, Jordan get a single, and now you've scored one run, and then Bregman and Correa can be retired. And you still get one run at least versus zero. It's just a way to try and manufacture more runs if you know that Bregman and Correa are going to combine hit 075. I don't think that will stay consistent. I think eventually they're going to get off the hump. I know Correa had a hit in this game, so that's a step in the right direction. And really, they're in a point where they are at such important parts of the lineup where one homer changes the entire series. If they get like a bases loaded situation and one of them hits a double in the gap and all of a sudden the Astros have turned their fortunes around and they win a game just based on that alone. I think that's why it's, the series is not over at all. Not just like a Braves are going to blow a 3-1 lead type of thing, but it's... Not at all over for that reason, but who knows? Maybe by the time you're listening to this podcast, it might actually be over. That is totally a real possibility that's going on right now. Wow, that felt good to talk 25 minutes of in-depth, numbers-based, crunching baseball. That felt really good. So, we'll move... Let's move over to college football real quick here. I want to talk a little bit about the Michigan-Michigan State battle that went down this weekend. That was the premier college football game and ended up living up to all the hype. And 
it's one of my favorite rivalries, or at least it was as a kid, because I thought it was fun when people stomped on logos and called each other little brothers and all that fun stuff. Um, I don't want to talk about the game itself, although the game itself is super interesting. The reason I don't want to do X's and O's breakdown of Michigan and Michigan State is because a lot of what we do here around college football is making fun of college football, and uh, doing in-depth Michigan-Michigan State analysis will only be relevant today. So if you are listening to this podcast sometime in November or sometime in December, maybe this won't be as relevant to you. But even still, well, I wanted to talk about Kenneth Walker because Kenneth Walker stole the show in that game where Michigan State stays undefeated and they go to 8 and Jim Harbaugh is now 3 and 4 against Michigan State and 0 and 6 against Ohio State which just gives us an excuse to play this amazing sound courtesy of Crowley Sullivan of Spartan Wire Coach Crowley Sullivan Spartan's Wire a little bit of a follow up on that question he came into Ann Arbor with perhaps the most hype of any coach in the history of the Big 10 maybe in all of college football a few years later, you've got a third place, third place, and fourth place finish, and you're one in five against Michigan State and Ohio State. What do you have to do this year to demonstrate to the Michigan community that you are on the path to achieving what they hired you to achieve? Harbaugh's response to that question is not important at all. It's just amazing that he asked that. I think that was back in 2018, if I remember correctly. So that was, what, like three years ago that he was 1-5 against Michigan State and Ohio State? Now he's, what, like 3-8, and eight, about to be 3-9 and nine when they play Ohio State in a few weeks? Anyways, so we get to laugh at that. But what I want to talk about is Kenneth Walker because Kenneth Walker had an interesting day. Five touchdowns, 200 yards, nationally televised game. I think his Heisman odds jumped from like plus 1,600 to plus 450, which would basically make him the favorite, especially on a day where the ACC Coastal did the ACC Coastal thing where Kenny Pickett, who was kind of the favorite for the Heisman after Matt Corral kind of fell off, he had an awful day, and Pitt lost to Miami. And anyways, now Kenneth Walker is the trendy name that's at the top of the Heisman candidacy in a year where there isn't really any runaway Heisman candidate. And we were talking about this on the Slump Buster this week is like if you go back into the Heisman Trophy lore. So last year, Devontae Smith walked run away with the Heisman Trophy. We knew he was going to win it. Joe Burrow, unanimous 2018. Kyler Murray, unanimous MVP or unanimous Heisman, excuse me, 2017, unanimous Heisman, Baker Mayfield, 2016, we all knew it was going to be Lamar Jackson, 2015, you knew it was going to be Derrick Henry, 14, Marcus Mariota had one of the great seasons in college football history, so you really go all the way back to like Johnny Manziel, Jameis Winston, before you have a Heisman Trophy race where no one really knows who's going to win it, and maybe in a few weeks we'll know exactly who's going to win it, but If it's going to be Kenneth Walker this year, this game is the reason why Kenneth Walker is going to win it. And it had me thinking, is college football a sport where you should give out the postseason awards the way that you do where one or two games ends up defining the entire season? Because college football is the one sport where if you're going to do that, it's the sport you can most justify the case of one to two magical performances. We're only watching games that matter. So if you do it on the biggest stage, you'll be granted the award. I talk all the time about the Lamar Jackson game that basically ended Florida State, usually in the context of making fun of Florida State, but even still, that game was nationally televised, college game day, and all and Lamar Jackson absolutely 
dominated, absolutely dominated Florida State. And Louisville that year, people forget, ended up losing to Kentucky the last week of the season, losing to, I believe, NC State. So Louisville finished the year like 8-4, and four, and Lamar Jackson still won the Heisman. And I think that was the last time, or the only time in the playoff era that the Heisman Trophy winner didn't make it to the college football playoff. And that kind of seems like where we're headed this year, given the names that people have thrown out, like Matt Corral, Kenny Pickett, uh, Kenneth Walker, no disrespect to Michigan State, but you guys probably aren't going to beat Ohio State, but you are one Ohio State win away from making it to the playoff. And if you do, then good for Kenneth Walker. He's going to be the Heisman Trophy winner if they beat Ohio State and he has a good game. But again, this is the same thing I was arguing a second ago. Is Should the sport be a case where one, two good games end up being the, the season award winner? And of course, we're talking about people who we already know are great. Like, we know Kenneth Walker by name because he puts up ridiculous numbers against Rutgers, and he puts up ridiculous numbers against Northwestern or the University of Miami. Like, of course, we know the players in the first place. Not like we're giving it to Joe Schmo, who hadn't done very well, and then goes for 450 yards and five touchdowns like that one time K.J. Costello from Mississippi State threw 600 passing yards against LSU last year. It's not like we're doing that. On the flip side of it, in a year where we don't really know who the Heisman Trophy winner is, and even if you want to do the default thing that all MVP, Cy Young, uh, Defensive Player of the Year, whatever else we do in sport where we just say best player on best team and be kind of lazy about how we give out awards, all of it to say that if you want to do it that way, then you look to Georgia and you're like, well, we're not giving it to Stenson Bennett. We're not giving it to anyone on that defense because defensive players don't win the Heisman. So best player, best team doesn't apply there. Who's the second best team in the country right now? Is it Alabama? Is it Oklahoma who can't win a game by more than 14 points? No one really knows. Is it Cincinnati? We're going to give it to Desmond Ritter for Cincinnati? Maybe. But again, Ritter has not had that national game because, of course, Cincinnati doesn't have nationally televised games. And now it becomes a whole paradox situation where everything is looping in and of itself, and it's impossible to figure these things out. But if Kenneth Walker is going to be the Heisman Trophy winner, today is a pretty good day for that case to be made that, yes, you have the magical game that we all remember we don't have to just use analytics in this case. We can use the justification of emotional, feeling emotion being the way to determine these trophy winners and making it a human award, which point I would say it devalues the evaluation of greatness. But even still, you can go back in time and find statistical data and apply it to eras. It's why some players look favorably as they grow older and get inducted into the Hall of Fame and why some statistics look worse. Like, I know for San Diego, like, Tony Gwynn is, like, an all-time great player and also hit a lot of singles. And in the modern baseball game, Tony Gwynn probably would have been devalued or incentivized to hit 40 homers. Now, I don't do the thing where you, like, devalue greatness because greatness should be appreciated in its respects, but even still, you can go back in time and look at stats and we have the capabilities to go back and figure it out. We can't apply era context outside of being in the moment. And sometimes doing it in the moment is wrong. Like Russell Westbrook getting the MVP in 2017 in the NBA. Like sometimes you're going to have mess ups 
when we apply that in the moment. It's like um, when Charles Woodson won the Heisman Trophy. People were like, how could this possibly have happened? How could we possibly put it? Because when we don't see things that are obvious, we get into a groupthink mode a little bit. This happens so much with the NFL draft where nobody knows what they're doing. The only way scouts hit on players is with slightly better luck than other people because there's so much so many resources being pooled in that we can get closer and closer to understanding projectabilities of players but at the same time it's an impossible task of guaranteeing how good or bad a player is going to be 10 years from now it's really hard and unless it jumps off the page it's really hard to figure these things out and so Kenneth Walker maybe jumps off the page but in a year where context and narrative is really going to decide uh, an award that we talk about years and years later because the Heisman Trophy, like Super Bowl champions, is one of those games that people can do where you go back in time and just list off names of Heisman Trophy winners, but you can't do that with like MVPs in the NFL or Offensive Player of the Year or even Rookie of the Year awards. Like The Heisman is just one of those things that we've decided to apply a ton of value to. And so if we're going to do that, this is an interesting question of how much should emotional value come in? Because statistics will get it wrong at times just because we're not looking at the right things. But that is all we we are human at a certain point and we're going to get it wrong at some point. So this is just a question of whether emotional narratives should play into deciding awards and whether and how we tell the history of college football, especially in a year where. Things have been kind of chaotic, but also pretty unremarkable because college football this year feels kind of boring in a different way than it felt boring when it was Alabama, Clemson, and Ohio State dominating, which by the way, I never really complained about. I just personally have moved away from college football from where I was as a child, which was Saturdays were big into college football and caring about college football and following different conferences and 60 some odd plus teams. I just don't have the wherewithal, uh, will, or resources of time to be able to really get invested in college football like I once did, but I can still follow it on the level that I follow baseball. I'm not ridiculously invested in baseball like I once was, and that's okay. I still love watching playoff baseball, even if I don't know all the players. If I don't know Phil Maton, former Padre, is the setup man for the Astros, or that Kyle Wright is now a starting pitcher for the Atlanta Braves, like that's something that like time and putting effort in has not gotten me there. And this is the same thing in college football, where a lot of us who aren't watching ridiculous amounts of college football, because college football ratings are down, and MLB ratings are down, and all this stuff, we rely a lot on the narratives to tell the story for us. And we rely on other people to list things out and give us carbon copies of how things are going. Because we can't watch all of it, nobody can watch all of it, even the people that are writing out the lists can't can't watch and consume all of it because it's just so much content. And so we rely on narrative-based storytelling to help tell the histories of these sports. And maybe Kenneth Walker is going to be the case where it's like, yes, this is something we should do. Maybe college football should be in this place. Who knows? But it'll be interesting to see if we have a sport based on subjectivity and we have a sport where these games matter so much more than maybe Kenneth Walker going for five touchdowns and 200 yards and people are like, well, he's one of a handful of people who should win the Heisman or statistically should win the Heisman. Do we separate it when it's not obvious, when it's not Kyler Murray or Joe Burrow 
or Lamar Jackson or Johnny Manziel, where we all know they look awesome. Even actually, I mentioned Johnny Manziel. Johnny Manziel was a little narrative based too. Like he was, he was flamboyant. He didn't shy away from the spotlight. He was a little bit alcoholic, but also was like at the time of when the hangover was super popular. It was kind of that era of culture and consumer culture in America and a growing social media trend to where Johnny Manziel is like singing March Madness while drunk after games and pulling up to courtside at Lakers games while he's still a student at Texas A&M and All that stuff was like a a time and a moment where Johnny Manziel was great and played into it. Maybe he would have won the Heisman anyways, because I don't even know who else was in that 2012 college football Heisman race, but Johnny Manziel was kind of even narrative-based as well. When it's not super obvious, like the people we've had for really the past seven years where we all know who the Heisman Trophy winner is, even if Joe Burrow was like not originally we thought was going to be a Heisman by like November we knew it was his to lose and nothing else and then he beat Alabama by dropping 45 points and we're like okay this is a guarantee and then he went on to break every passing record in NCAA history and SEC history and LSU history and it's like okay yeah he's obviously that dude who's gonna win the Heisman so when it's not that obvious and we have to break ties Do we lean on the emotional side of our brains or do we look deeper into numbers and use the left side of our brain to read information, calculate information and determine who the Heisman Trophy winner should be? By the way, 2012 Heisman forgot about Optimus Klein. Oh, what a magical year that was. Colin Klein in Kansas State was number one in the country. They fell apart afterwards, but man, what a time that was. Maybe we should tell the story of Optimist Klein sometime here on the podcast because Colin Klein was a mobile quarterback for Bill Snyder's Kansas State and they were running the ball all the way up and down the field and he would have been a cool narrative-based story if Kansas State hadn't fallen apart at the end of the season. What ended up happening? I'm trying to remember. So they got to number one in the country. Oh, that's right. They lost to Baylor. I forgot about that. That propelled Art Bryles forward. Yeah, I forgot about that. Kansas State was number one, and then they just like dominated everyone. And then they lost big to Baylor, and then they got like smoked by, I forgot who it was. Oh, Oregon. That's right. It was like the second to last game of the season. Like they were, it was November, and they were like number one in the country. Like it was like Kansas State was going to play in the BCS National Championship, and then it was just. 35 point loss to Baylor and then that was the end of Optimus Klein but man I'd forgotten about how cool that was Optimus Klein beating teams by like an average margin of victory of 28 and then losing (laughs) losing by 28 themselves to Baylor because Kansas State is not allowed to play for a BCS national championship forgot that that was the same year as Johnny Manziel man that was a little bit of a nostalgia trip Back when I really, really loved college football and Optimus Klein was awesome and Kansas State was doing good. Man, forgot that that was that year. Also, Manti Teo. I forgot he finished third in the Heisman that year. Manti Teo was a weird time, wasn't it? And then he got drafted by the Chargers and I used to love the Chargers back then. Ugh. What a time that was. What a time. Manti Teo was interesting. I mean, this was obviously right around the the catfished girlfriend situation that ends up being the thing we remember Manti Teo for. But I didn't understand any of that when I was 11. I thought it was cool that he was wearing the 
uh, traditional, what is the the flower wreath thing that uh, people have in Hawaii? He was wearing that to the Heisman Trophy ceremony. I was like, oh my gosh, look at this. This is college football's Notre Dame finest. Notre Dame is undefeated, and that's going to be the star player, their defense. But also, if Georgia wanted to have that this year, I don't know if anyone could name a defensive player on Georgia. Who knows? Forgot Manti Teo was that year. Who else was playing college football that year? Oh, yeah, the Jordan Lynch season. Tavon Austin, who was the number eight pick in the draft. At a certain point, they just kind of fill in people after that, but it was still interesting. Braxton Miller, I forgot about the Braxton Miller season, 2012. Oh, Ohio State was so close that year. They were so close. Ah, Good times, good memories, good little nostalgia trip here to send us into the NFL week or just send you off into whatever your day is going to be. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for stopping into Wired Up episode 92. Uh, we got double episodes tomorrow, NFL Monday, as well as the Memes of the Weekend podcast. Make sure to check that out as well. Um, and check out last week's episodes, download them. A uh, new month starting, so those analytics are resetting. We appreciate all the downloads that you guys continue to give and five-star reviews. Doesn't have to be a nice review, just has to be a five-star review review on the take it easy podcast to help us keep on messing with those ig algorithms or i guess podcast apple podcast algorithms anyways enjoy the rest of your day everybody and we will talk to you again soon take it easy